Welcome to This Week in California Education, brought to you by EdSource Radio. I'm Lewis Friedberg. And I'm John Fensterwald. The imminent Democratic takeover of the U.S. House of Representatives has renewed hope amid continuing anxiety for hundreds of thousands of undocumented immigrants who arrived in the United States as children. President Obama granted them temporary protection from deportation through the program known as Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals, or more commonly DACA. But President Trump moved to eliminate the program a year ago and challenged Congress to reinstate it. But so far, that has gotten nowhere, and lawsuits have tied up the issue in court. There are just over 200,000 DACA recipients in California alone, and their plight has been overshadowed by the current fixation on caravans of Central Americans who've come up to the U.S. border and uh, the subsequent attempts by the Trump administration to upend long-standing U.S. asylum policies. We thought we should check into what was happening on the DACA front. We'll hear from a DACA recipient who talks about the turmoil and uncertainty the upheavals around the program has created, and we'll explore what might be in store, good or bad, for these young people. We'll also discuss the latest California data on student suspension rates. You know, there's mostly good news. The rates continue to go down, but also some worrisome information. And we'll update you on the progress in the town of Paradise to reopen schools next week for children whose lives have been in disarray since a massive wildfire wiped out most of their homes and all but one of their schools. But first, let's hear from Salvador Cruz Matus. He's a DACA recipient who was born in Mexico and is now a student at Cal State San Marcos near San Diego. I arrived in California when I was three months old. I've been here ever since. I am now 23 years old. I know my parents, they never went to middle school, and so I was the first to graduate from middle school, then high school, and now I have the possibility of graduating first in my family out of college. You can't put words to it, at least I can't. I think the support that we have in the house now is a great advantage for DREAMers, DACA recipients. I think it's still a tough battle, of course, because in order for us to receive something, something has to be given in return, and I think the uncertainty is on what the current administration wants in return. My biggest fear is that it's just going to keep prolonging itself. We're still kind of in limbo. That was Salvador Cruz Matus, a student at Cal State San Marcos. We are now going to turn to our reporter Zadie Stavely, who has been following the DACA story. Zadie, to what extent are DACA recipients looking to the House of Representatives for some relief? And just to remind our listeners, DACA stands for Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals. A bit of a mouthful. The DACA recipients that I spoke with are definitely hopeful. In fact, some of them helped get out the vote in uh, November to try to overturn some of the Republican congressional districts and turn them Democrat. Um, and they were specifically trying to get out the vote for uh, candidates that they thought would push forward a bill with permanent protection for DREAMers. You know, one woman that I spoke with said that she she basically said, now we've put them in power, now we expect them to leverage their that power in Congress. Because isn't it the case that many of these candidates, Democrats who've now been elected, certainly in California, as part of their platform was to support continuing the DACA program? That's right. And Nancy Pelosi has also said that she will pass a bill for DREAMers, that the Democrats will pass a bill for DREAMers. Um, it's unclear how much power they would actually have. A bill that, if they pass a bill in the House, they would still have to pass the Senate, which is uncertain at, at best. 
Um, but I, the people that I spoke with were hoping that they would be able to use DACA as leverage to pass other things like a federal budget. What bill are you referring to, Zadie? Well, they're looking for permanent protection because DACA only gives temporary protection uh, for two years at a time. And at this point... And then you have to reapply? Is that how it works? After two years, you have to reapply. Uh, before your DACA expires, you have to reapply. And right now, because of the court cases, DACA recipients are still able to renew, but you can't apply for the first time anymore. So many, um, many people who would be eligible for DACA otherwise are no longer eligible. Many hundreds of thousands, right, nationally? The estimate is 600,000 people that would have been eligible for DACA never applied to begin with, and those people no longer are able to apply. The DACA recipients have been in this holding pattern for years now. How are they, how are they holding up? The DACA recipients that I spoke with and the people who work with DACA recipients at colleges say that there's heightened anxiety and more panic and more mental health problems such as depression. One woman that I spoke with said, I've been here since I was one year old. I'm 29. I've been waiting for 28 years. How much longer do we have to wait? For those who are active, it's sort of an act of courage, you know, to put yourself out there and campaign. People who arrived in the United States as children have been at the forefront of civil disobedience and actions to try to get immigration reform and specifically bills for dreamers from the beginning. And certainly it is um, an act of courage. A lot of those young people have come out and said that they're undocumented. And, you know, they've used the words undocumented and unafraid because they believe that it's important for people to understand their stories in order to understand how important it is to pass something. We're talking with Zadie Stavely, the EdSource reporter who has been following this issue. But Zadie, isn't it the case that one of the obstacles to getting any legislation through Congress is that the Trump administration and the Republicans are trying to tie this to funding for the border wall, and they've just thrown in a lot of other things that the Democrats would never go for? Won't that make it very difficult to get legislation through Congress? That's right. President Trump has been trying to tie DACA legislation to border wall funding from the beginning. Right now, he's trying to push for $5 billion in border wall funding before Congress closes for December and before the Democrats take over in January. It's unclear what would happen if it's possible DACA could come up next week in the negotiations. In an interview with Politico, Trump said this week that he doesn't want to do a deal on Dreamers before the Supreme Court makes a decision. So the Trump administration is asking the Supreme Court to make decisions on all the DACA cases before the appeals courts make decisions and as soon as January. Well, thank you so much. We've been talking with Zadie Stavely, and uh, I think this is a reminder that uh, a lot of enthusiasm and hopefulness in California. Democrats are firmly in control, but we still have to rely on Congress to uh, take action on uh, federal immigration policies and many other policies. And uh, it's not clear what's going to happen. Thanks for having me. Up next, we'll take a look at California's huge success in reducing suspension rates. California recently released annual data looking at rates of high school graduation, dropouts, chronic absenteeism, and suspensions. And there have been some yearly fluctuations, but 
John, there have been generally positive trends. Now the districts have really started paying attention to indicators of achievement other than test scores in math and reading, which really was one of the main ways that schools were measured. Yeah, I think that's made a big difference, Lewis. I wrote about the graduation rate, which has risen to a near record 83% statewide, and the dropout rate, which is 10%. That's a lot lower than a decade ago, but still, when you think about it, one out of 10 students in the class of 2018 and one out of six African-American students quit school, which is disturbing. Lewis, you looked at suspension rates. Any good news? Well, yes, actually. Over the last half dozen years or so, the state has really made a huge push to reduce suspension rates. I mean, the view is that you really need kids to be in school in order to succeed. The numbers of suspensions have been cut virtually by half. Six years ago, there were about 700,000 suspensions, and now it's down to 360,000. Yeah, that's quite remarkable. I mean, because students have recognized the importance of it in terms of student achievement, but also there's a new accountability system, right, that emphasizes that rate. That kind of rewards schools or gives them at least some praise. There's no actual physical rewards, but uh, schools are acknowledged for reducing suspension rates. Yeah, and it dings them if they don't. They're very high. Dings them in what way? On the dashboard, you know, their color will be red or orange, which is the two cautionary colors, and in fact, they may require that they get help from their county office of education. Okay, but they don't lose funding or anything like that as no, a result. not no. in California these okay. days. We try to give some positive strokes exactly. to, to, for, for schools and districts doing the right thing. But the interesting thing in looking at the data more closely is that virtually all the decline in suspensions has come from this one category of suspensions, willful defiance suspensions. Six years ago, there were about 350,000 suspensions for willful defiance. And this past year, it's gone down to about 60,000 suspensions. So there's been a virtually a sixth-fold decrease in these willful defiance suspensions. And these are, these are suspensions for willful defiance of school authorities or disruptive behavior that there was a strong feeling that it was a very vague category. A student acts out in class. The teacher says, oh, you're out. <laughs> I can't deal with you and that maybe there were other ways to handle disruptive behavior other than suspending a student. And so the state actually put a ban, signed by Jerry Brown, on willful defiance suspensions in the K-3 grades, but not in the upper grades. Some school districts, entire school districts like LA Unified and Oakland and San Francisco, have actually eliminated suspensions for willful defiance and that seems to have made a huge difference. Yeah, I should have mentioned that right off the bat, that there was a law change as well that would have affected the rates. And then, as you said, districts have gone ahead and banned them on their own. But changing a law does one thing, doesn't end the problems often that students are still misbehaving in class. And so the idea was that schools and districts would begin training that teachers will learn how to cope with disruptive behaviors in, in better ways than simply suspending, right? That's correct. I mean, I think we don't really have a clear sense as to what is happening with students who are acting out in class. And uh, we still see disparities, even with these low rates, between African-American and white and Asian students in particular. So that's, that's a concern. But uh, clearly, we also know that numbers of districts have implemented restorative justice practices and other ways to handle conflict other than you're out, go home, you're suspended for the next two or three days. 
What about other forms of suspension, more serious acts of uh, behavior? Good question, John. And I think those suspensions have kind of been lost a little bit with this focus on reducing willful defiance suspensions. And I looked at those, and the suspensions involving violence with injury, violence without injury, and for weapons possession, they've gone down a bit, but they are still pretty high. Just give you an example. For incidents of suspensions for violence with injury, in six years ago, there were 52,000 of those suspensions, and now there's 46,000. So what does that tell us? To me, it tells me that good that we focus on willful defiance suspensions, but really we, we need to be paying more attention to these suspensions for more serious behaviors because that is very concerning that there's still 46,000 suspensions of kids who committed acts of violence that had some form of injury and then 11,000 suspensions for bringing a weapon to school. So uh, more attention to the more serious suspensions. Before we go, some hopeful news from Paradise, where three elementary schools will open Monday in nearby Oroville, Chico, and Megalia for some of the 3,500 students in Paradise Unified. We'll be at the opening next week and look forward to telling you more about the massive organization and determination by the teachers and volunteers to restore the sense of community to families who have lost pretty much everything but each other. For those of you who want to read more about what's happening in the schools, please go to our website. Our reporters, David Washburn and Diana Lambert, have really been doing a terrific job. They've been on the ground out there looking at the devastation and the response and the encouraging response to the fires. And that just about wraps it up for this week in California education. Thanks to our sponsors, the S.D. Bechtel Jr. Foundation and the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. Our producer is Shuka Kalatari. Our music is from Nate Schwartz Jazz Orchestra and our own Justin Allen. If you like what you hear, write us a review on iTunes. And also, we encourage you to contribute to our news match, which uh, is on this month. And every dollar you donate to EdSource helps support this podcast and also is worth twice as much to us. We very much appreciate your support. I'm Lewis Friedberg. And I'm John Fensterwald. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week.